0: You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, while you're finding your place, I want to say thank you to... uh, well, a whole bunch of people. If I start trying to call you by name, I'd mess it up. But uh, Friday night had a, just a wonderful event over here with our neighbors uh, in the community. Had a tremendous oppor- multiple opportunities to talk to people from our community, and uh, I just really appreciate all the hard work that our children's ministry team and others put into that. And then last night we had a uh, tremendous concert here. It really wasn't a concert. I don't really like calling it that. It was a worship service, um, and. Uh, Man, has had some just some tremendous talented people here last night, including our choir and our team. And it was just a blessing to be part of that. Genesis chapter 9. Uh, when, I, when I'm laying out these sermon series, uh, sometimes it can be six months past uh, when I was putting Genesis together. And my intentions for Genesis 9 was very different than where I'm going to be today and what I'm going to focus on today. But like I just said earlier, I'm always going to go with the Holy Spirit. And if he says, this is the direction I'm going to go, this is the direction I'm going to go, it'd be foolish to do anything different. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything." and to multiply in it. Father, we pause this morning to say thank you for your goodness and your provision. And Father, how sweet it is to trust in you. What an incredible, joy-filled life it is to follow you. What an incredible peace, a peace that you say to sur- surpasses all human understanding. That faith in you gives us that kind of peace in a world that is an absolute chaos. And Father, how happy it is to just be able to get up every day and follow you. In spite of the hardship, in spite of the valleys, in spite of the trouble. Lord, there is no greater life on this planet. There's no greater adventure than to be redeemed by you And spend the rest of my life walking with you. It is a privilege I did not deserve. It is a grace that I should have never received. And yet, Father, in your goodness, not only have you forgiven me, not only have you adopted me, but in spite of myself and in spite of my failures, you love me even still. I have no words, Father, other than to say I'm just in awe of you. I'm thankful for the beauty and the perfection of your word. I'm thankful for the change that it brings about in my life. And I'm thankful, Father, that you know me by name. And my name is written down. That it's a work of your grace. Father, I pray that you guide us in your word today. Lord, it's a, it's a heavy, heavy text that we have to look at today. And Father, I pray that even now you begin opening our heart to maybe things that have been there for quite some time that, that you want to deal with today. So, Father, I know that you've already begun your work in the hearts of people even before they walked in today. So, Father, I pray that you continue that good work. Thank you, Father, for our time together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I am, um, I'm intrigued by what I'm seeing in the news as of late. And it seems as though what happened on October 7th with Hamas invading Israel has, well, really kind of pulled a scab off that we need to take a look at. But Because what's so concerning for me right now is that while we despise racism and we, we despise the idea of of hating another group of people because of the color of their skin or because of socioeconomic or whatever, that, that, that our, our country, at least in the last 10 or 12 years, have, have kind of rallied around this idea that the racism is not going to be tolerated. Yet in the last couple of weeks, we have seen paraded on the news consistently over and over and over again the pure, unadulterated hatred of a race of people. And what's even more concerning is there's really no one stepping up saying, that is racism at its worst. And it's not only just the racism, but it is the, the abject hatred that we are seeing really just all across our country. And, and as I have watched some of these gatherings of people who, who say they are supporting the Palestinian people but going even so far as to support a terrorist organization, refusing to call out those who walked into a a, a country, crossed over a border, walked into a concert of innocent people. These people were not combatants. These people were not military. These people were not holding guns. They were simply there for a concert, and they were mowed down children, infants, all in the name of hatred. And as I have seen these, the only thing I can describe is celebrations in our own country of that kind of hatred Folks, it, it does something to my heart. It makes me stand back for just a moment and go, you know, Jeremiah chapter 17 says that the depths of the human heart is evil beyond anything we can imagine. Who can know the depths of it? Well, God knows the depths of it. And we've been able to see just a little glimpse at just what the human being, the human heart, is capable of. I don't know, when, you, when you've watched this online or on, on television, I don't know if you've noticed that, the signs that I see a lot of people holding, it says this on the signer. It says this on their shirt. It says, from the river to the sea. I don't know if you've saw that, those signs. Here's what they mean by that. If you turn to the back of your Bible, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, if you look it up on your app or if you Google search and you look at a map, a biblical map of, of Israel, what you're going to find running right down through almost the middle of that landmass is the Jordan River. The Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south. And it divides this land almost completely in half. It's a little bit a little bit to the east, so there's more landmass to the west than there is to the east. And so then to the west you have the Mediterranean Sea. So when you see a sign from these protesters that says from the river to the sea, let me let me describe to you what they're saying. What they are saying is, is that the land that is inhabited by the Jewish people that was given to them by the creator himself, these people are picketing saying that not only do those people not, do not belong in that land, but they are to be driven from that land and even destroyed. You see, this argument is much more than just about a piece of land. This is an argument about the existence of an ethnic group of people, and there are quite a few people, and they're very loud, from the professors in the Ivan Lee College to those who are protesting out on the street, what they are saying collectively is, is what Israel got, Israel deserved, and that this nation does not deserve to exist. Folks, we got to understand this. That is fueled by hatred. It is fueled by racism. And for all of those in our country who Who proclaim to hate racism? They're awfully silent right now. Peculiarly so. These group of people would seem seemingly justify the killing of children because they certainly haven't condemned it. And when they say from the river to the sea, what they are saying is, we want these people eradicated. History is very much cyclical. It's incredible. God has judged the world for this exact kind of hatred. Prior to the flood, we don't have a lot of indication of what was happening, but we're going to find out in chapter 9 about what God says to Noah and his family. We have a little bit of an indication of what was happening that led up to God judging humanity. But we can assume and we can understand that that God judging wickedness, that God deciding to wipe out all of the human race except for eight people, it had to have been really, really bad. It had to have been chaos. It had to have been rampant killing. No concern for human life. So God pours out a global flood. And he saves eight people in an ark. And these people spent 370 days on this ark. It eventually comes lodged on Mount Ararat. And eventually, God allows them to leave the ark but the earth, the planet they step out on is very different than the planet they, they got on the ark and what it looked like. 1,600 years from the, from the time of the fall, Adam and Eve in the garden, 1,600 years to the time that God says, I'm going to destroy all humanity except for these eight people. And so from the fall to the flood, the sinfulness and the evil that had taken root in the hearts of humanity, well, was on a scale of which God said they must be destroyed. And so now in chapter 9, we get a little bit of insight by what God says to Noah and his family about some restrictions that he puts in place. In chapter 9, what we're going to see, and we're not going to go through the whole chapter, there's one area that I want to focus on. Originally, I kind of planned to go down this path, and God said, no, this week you're not going down that. You're going to talk about this. But in this chapter, what we see is we see God blessing Noah and his family, And then out of that blessing flows a covenant promise, and that promise is that God will never destroy the earth again with a global flood. Now, that doesn't mean there's not going to be localized flooding. We know that full well. But there will never be another global judgment event by the means of a flood. Now, there will be another global judgment that is coming, but it won't be a flood. And God not only blesses Noah and his family and not only establishes a covenant with them and and all of humanity, but then he also seals that covenant or gives a sign to that covenant, and he puts a rainbow in the sky. So every time you see that rainbow, it's a reminder of God's goodness and a reminder of God's promise that he made in Genesis chapter 9. So what I want to do this morning As I want to look at these opening verses of chapter 9, because I think there's something very important here we need to see. So let's pick it up in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The first thing I need you to see this morning as we move into God speaking to Noah and his family is God was not obligated at all to do anything on on behalf of humanity. From the, from the point of the fall all the way up to Noah in the ark, we have seen nothing but abject sinfulness and evil. And here's God speaking to Noah. And notice what God does. God chooses to speak, but then God chooses to bless. And what we need to understand is, is God was not obligated to do either. God could have said, you know what? Humanity, I'm done with him. I'm going to let Noah and his family live out their days and that's going to be it. You see, I've said this to you before, but it's worth saying again. God does not need you. God does not need me. God, being God, doesn't need anything. So the idea that, that God created us so he could have some people to worship him, it gets the idea across that, that God needed that. God doesn't need us. God didn't need Noah. God didn't need the human race. God had Trinity, And all of its beauty and all of its power was completely sufficient and completely fine without humanity. It was out of God's good grace, out of his good love, that he chose to create humanity. He says to Noah and his family, he says, be fruitful and multiply. He reminds them of the command that he gave to Adam and Eve. And now at this point, there's only eight human beings alive. So it's important that they continue to propagate the human race. But notice verse 2. There's some differences, some changes that God ushers in as a result of this post-flood environment. Notice verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the ground. Now, if you go back to Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, we have the, the twofold command to humanity, that is to subdue and to provide dominion that humanity was given the responsibility to be stewards of God's creation. We fast forward to after the flood and notice this, the animal kingdom is now in a place of fear and dread of humanity. Now, I think it's been building to this point. After the fall, we know that the earth was cursed. Prior to the fall, there was a relationship between Adam and Eve and the animal kingdom where there was no animosity, there was no... There was no fear. There was no uh, attacks or, or kind of violence between humanity and the, and the animal kingdom. After the fall, the earth is cursed. We would imagine that during that time, there continues to be this, this brokenness between humanity and the creation. But in chapter 9, now those animals that were once, you know, cohabiting with humanity now is afraid and has dread of human beings. Another change, verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. If you go back to the creation account, you'll notice that God says to Adam and Eve that the plants, the fruit, the vegetables, pretty much a vegetarian life is what it seems to indicate. Now, I'm very much a meat eater. If you're a vegetarian, wow, I'm, I'm impressed with you. I really am. People who, who, who are doing the vegetarian life, I'm impressed with that. I can't do it. I have a grill in the backyard, and there's a whole lot of meat been across that grill past and present and in the future. But notice here, after the flood, something interesting. God says to humanity that now he's going to open up their, their diet. And he says, now you're going to be able to eat Meat. You're going to be able to eat animals. You're going to be able to do this. And I, I'm, I'm, almost, I'm convinced that this was already happening prior to the flood. And the reason I think it was happening prior to the flood is because of the restriction that God provides next. Look at this. He says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So God gives a restriction here. Now, the question is, is why would God not only open up the dietary restrictions for man to be able to eat meat, but then to also give this restriction that you are not to eat animals with the blood still intact in the body. I have to wonder if that wasn't part of the evil and the sin that was happening prior to the flood. We know that in history, all down through biblical history in particular, That pagan nations, pagan peoples, people who worshiped idols, they would often eat and consume the blood of animals as part of the sacrificial process. I don't know that that was what was happening prior to the flood, but what we do know is that the evil in this world had gotten to the point by which God says, I've got to wipe them out. So we can basically assume that idolatry, pride, arrogance, and all that comes with it, murder, was all part of the human existence prior to the flood. Now, I think that's why it explains why God is giving this restriction. He says, he says that you shall not eat flesh with the lifeblood still in it. Now, when we get into the Mosaic law, now remember, this is all prior to the law of Sinai. So, when we get to Moses' law, we have all kinds of restrictions that are built in to separate the nation of Israel from all the other nations. You see, down through time, all these other nations, is, in fact, Israel— was one of the only nations that had been given these kind of dietary restrictions, especially concerning blood. The idea and what God is saying here is that even the life of the animal is important. That even the life of an animal, even though it doesn't bear the image of God, It requires stewardship of humanity. It requires that we we do things the right way. And so when God opens up the opportunity for humanity to begin eating meat, what he says to humanity is is don't act like the animal kingdom. Don't be like a carnivore where you're just rapidly killing animals and trying to eat them while they're still alive. In other words, if you're going to take the life of the animal, make sure you drain all of its blood out. But but don't don't eat an animal while its lifeblood is still in it that by taking that animal's life, you remember that God has given this as a provision, that you remember that life is valuable, that you remember that life is important. But notice what he says next. He talks about the animal kingdom and the honor and respect that we should show that life is precious. But then he takes it up a notch. Look at this. Verse 5, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. You see that word reckoning? He uses it twice. It's the idea that there is, well, an even-handed justice that must, must occur. And God says to humanity, he says, and for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. From every, be- every beast, I will require it, and from man, I will require it. What is he saying? He says, okay, on the first, hand, on the first side of this, if, a, if an animal attacks a human being and kills a human being, that animal is to be put down. Pretty easy to understand when you get over in the Mosaic Law. You see exactly the same thing with more detail. But then he takes it another step, and and God says to Noah and these these eight people that are alive, he says to them, hey, if, if a human being takes the life of another human being, that person forfeits their life. Look at what he says. He says, from this fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. It is the fact that humanity bears the image of God, represents God, has faculties that are the same as God himself. And only humanity received that gift. And so God says, yes, The stewardship, this dominion that you're to provide over the animal kingdom, make sure you do that the right way because life is important. But to take it up a notch, human life, the imago Dei, the image of God in you requires that if someone kills another human being in cold blood, that that person's life is forfeited and that person's life, well, it must come to an end. I've been asked this question. It's a good question, but the The presupposition to this question is kind of obvious, but here's the question I've been asked. So I understand that you're pro-life, and I I am. I believe that life begins at conception. This church believes that life begins at conception. We believe that at conception, the human being is an image-bearer of God and therefore has intrinsic value and therefore should be protected. We don't make any apologies for that. So how, pastor, can you be pro-life And at the same time, be pro-capital punishment. Now, I don't think I've ever told you this. Maybe I have. I don't know in a previous sermon because, again, this is a little different. But I do believe in the death penalty. And there are 27 states in our union that also believe in the death penalty. So the idea is is how can I believe that life is precious and yet on the same sentence or the same framework say that a person who kills another human being in premeditated murder, as our justice system has defined it, Should be put to death? Yes. I believe those two can be true at the same time, and here's how. The life inside that womb is innocent. The life that made the choice to kill another human being in cold blood has made a choice, an evil choice. And therefore, God says, should be held accountable. Now, whether you agree with me or disagree, that's fine. But the point is, is that God, right here in the earliest moments of of the creation account and and the earliest time of history, God says that those who bear the image of God are intrinsically valuable, so much so that if a person takes one of those lives, they forfeit their own. And so, we have in front of us this morning this idea that, that murder not only works against the command that we're going to see in verse 7, to multiply. We only have eight people here, folks. We only have eight people out of all humanity. We have eight people, and these eight people, our great-great-great-whatever grandparents, we're all descendants of Noah, that if, if they can't respect human life, if they can't respect the beauty of what human life is, then we're going to just descend into chaos and the human race will cease to exist. So God says, God entrusts to humanity this system of if you take a life, your life will be required. And that follows us all the way down into our current justice system. And they have set up parameters on how this is to be handled. In the Mosaic law, it was set up. But here we are faced with the value of a human life. Not only does this work against God's command to be fruitful and multiply, but get this, there is nothing more that a person could ever do to, be, to want to be more like God than to take human life. In other words, the ultimate God complex that a person would have, the ultimate outworking of, of pride and arrogance that you somehow are a God and that you're in control can be seen no other place more clearly than when a human being decides to take the life of another human being that you are playing God in that moment. So this morning what I want to do is I want to say, okay, we understand the idea of murder. We understand the idea of capital punishment. But I think sometimes what we gloss over is the heart motivations behind all of that. What's going on in the heart? And the other, the other issue within the church or the other issue within followers of Jesus is we, is we might think that because we put our faith in Jesus and, and we've been adopted by God that somehow we are now immune to the level of hatred that could lead to such a thing. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus speaks to this in the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. The Sermon on the Mount has as its target disciples of Jesus. So if you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully, just read the Sermon on the Mount. And there what he does is he lays forth an ethical standard for what it means to follow Jesus. And what contrasts his sermon and the precepts within the sermon is you contrast that with what was happening in Judaism. In Judaism of Jesus' day, there was this, this outward piety This this outward practice of religion. But in their hearts, Jesus says, well, they were full of evil. Then on one hand, they had religious observance where everyone looked at them and thought that, man, these people are right with God. But Jesus looked right past all of their rituals and he looked at their heart. And he said, you've you got a heart problem. So he teaches these things to his disciples and to all of us as his disciples to say to us, be careful with outward observance that looks pious and religious, having no thought about your own heart and the motivations behind it. Verse 21 in Matthew 5, Jesus is going to use this. Well, this this kind of a theme that he goes into, and he says, you have heard it it said this, and he's referring to the law. And then he's going to say, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you how to apply this and live this out. In other words, Jesus is going to take the law. He's not going to undermine it. What he's going to do is expand it, specifically looking at the motivation of the heart. So look at verse 21. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now, that is referring back to the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment in particular. And the Sixth Commandment says, you shall not murder. Some translations say, you shall not kill. That is not a great English translation. Because the Hebrew behind that English translation leans more towards murder than it does killing. But nonetheless, Jesus says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So the Jewish people, the disciples, understood this commandment, understood the purpose of this commandment, and knew that this commandment flowed out of Genesis 9. They all knew that. But notice what Jesus says, verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, is Jesus saying on the one hand that if you get angry about anything, then you've somehow sinned and you're standing in a place of judgment? That's not what he's saying. In fact, it is entirely appropriate at times to get angry. Entirely appropriate. The things I see going on in the news, the the racism, the anger, the hatred, I get angry about that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about angry towards another human being, anger that is tearing another person down. Anger... That is happening oftentimes. A conversation you're having with yourself someone's hurt you, someone stabbed you in the back, somebody threw you under the bus, somebody treated you horribly. Maybe years ago, maybe it was when you were a child, maybe it was a parent or a grandparent, maybe it was a a friend, maybe it was a spouse, maybe it was a horrible, bitter divorce, maybe it was. Who know, I mean, any number of things, but you were treated horribly, and all these years, you've been having a conversation with yourself, and anytime you think about that person, there's a conversation that you have with yourself, and that conversation goes to really dark places. you see the thing is, Only you and God know about it. But there's a seed of hatred, and you've been watering that seed, and you've been fertilizing that seed, and that seed has taken root in your heart, it's turned into bitterness. And it's hatred, deep, unsettled hatred. And Jesus says that 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 conversation that's happening in our heart, that anger that we have, that anger that is directed at and tearing down another person, what he's wanting us to understand is that that anger is what leads to all murders, And you're saying, well, why are we even talking about this? I would never, I would never take up a a weapon and kill another human. I would never do that. Well, you may never act on that. Listen, in your heart, you have destroyed that person over and over and over again. Not only that, let's just be honest here. That person hurt you to such a degree that in your mind, you have wished them dead. In your mind, you have played out scenarios in your mind of horrible things happening to them. Guess what? Guess what's happening? That anger has already taken you to a place of murder, and you've never picked up a single weapon in your life. Look at what he says next. He says "He says you'll be liable to judgment, either, 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 either judgment. If you act on it, if you act on that anger, you may be held accountable by the local court system. You may be arrested, but make no mistake about it, if you go through your whole life and you just harbor this anger and hatred on the inside of you, God will one day hold you accountable because he knows all things. Nothing's hidden from him. Look at the second instance. He says He says that whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Notice that whoever insults. Your translation may say the word raka. It's a Aramaic term. And it's it's a term of well, of, of just great hatred that was used in Jesus' day. Now, there are all kinds of words in our current English language that we could use that would be just as derogatory. I'm not going to use them. You can think of them. You know what they are, something you would call another human being. But in Jesus' day, this word raka was that, was that word. Even Jesus using it in this sermon would have offended people. Even Jesus using this word, uh, this, this would be like your, your curse word of Jesus' day. And Jesus says that if you're using this kind of thinking in the conversation you're having with yourself, you're calling this person, and the word literally means empty-headed. Um, We've got kids in the service. I want to be careful here. This is not a word I want anybody to use, but calling someone stupid, calling someone an idiot. You're doing that on the inside, That's that, that, that inside conversation you're having. Guess what? Jesus says you, you, you're crossed the line here. You're tearing down the Imago Dei in that person. You are are tearing down the person. Even though you never say it, it never comes out, you never act on it in violence, on the inside you are filled with violence towards another human being. And God says, Christ says, that you are tearing down even to the point of murdering, even though you never picked up a weapon. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is so hard. He does the same thing with lust in the very next paragraph. This is the same exact concept, lusting in your heart, equivalent to the action itself. He says, insulting your brother. Notice this he says, and hey, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell of fire. That word hell being Gehenna. Gehenna was the trash dump where Jesus could point and see the fires and smoke rising out of that trash dump. It was called Gehenna. And Jesus would use that as an illustration a separation from God forever in a place of torment. And he says here, look, if you have a heart that is filled with hatred, not only was God going to hold you accountable, but it may very well be that you're not even born again. He says you call someone a fool. Uh, the Greek behind this English translation, the root word, connects to our English word moron. How, how easy is it to do that, Right? You're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, and you let the words fly. Maybe not externally, internally. And in that moment, there's an anger that creeps up and just takes hold of us, and we just vocalize it either either with the folks in our car or or maybe we just keep it to ourselves. Jesus says, Be careful, disciple. Be careful. He says here, What you're doing is you're stripping away that person's identity. You are stepping into a role that only God can hold that identifies who a person is, gives them value, intrinsic value, and in that moment, you are stripping that away and tearing that down. God says, be careful with that. Look at verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then coming off your gift. So Jesus takes it a step further and he says, let's, let's talk about your corporate worship. Let's talk about your adoration to God as a disciple. He says, If in that moment you realize that you have wronged somebody or someone has wronged you, you, you need to take care of that first because that thing is going to come between you and God. That thing is going to weigh on your worship and adoration, even your prayer life to God. You might want to. Take care of that. Go reconcile that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 19, you don't have to pull up, turn over there, Paul says that we have been reconciled to God through Christ. Reconcile means that the debts of sin, the separators from God, that has been, been paid by Christ. And, and so now we are, we are made, placed into a relationship with God by which the sin doesn't separate us anymore. We are right with God. Paul says that we've been reconciled to God, and he says that, in turn, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus, in his final prayer in John 17, you don't have to turn over there either, he prays for the future church, us. You know what he prays? He prays that we'd be unified, and he prays that we would love. And love well. All through the New Testament, we're told over and over again that the church will be known for the way it loves. So, so what is the antidote to the, the, the chaos, the division, the racism, and the hatred? I think we can all agree that more hatred is not going to help. Can we all agree that getting on Facebook and getting on social media and getting into an argument with someone online to the point to where we are tearing the other person down? It's okay to debate. But once that debate moves into tearing the other person down, you have crossed from debate into an area of possible hatred and tearing down the very value that that person has. Listen, you can disagree adamantly with people. You can, you can be on two separate islands, But the one thing we cannot do as disciples of Christ is lessen the image of God, the value of that person. We do not have the right, no matter how horrible, no matter how evil they've been, no matter how they've treated you, we as followers of Jesus have no right to devalue another human being at all. And if we do, God will hold us accountable. He says, make things right prior to... To worshiping him. So, with Genesis 9 all the way to Matthew 5, what do we do? What's our, what's our next steps here? First of all, true disciples of Christ not only avoid murder, but they also avoid the heart attitudes behind it. I've told you before that I've always been kind of intrigued with the rise of Hitler in the 30s leading up to the concentration camps. And one of the reasons I've been intrigued with, not because I love gore and horror. I don't like that part at all. Matter of fact, it makes me sick when I read about it. But the reason I've been so intrigued with that is is the question is how can humanity become so evil? How how, how can they get to a point to where they are destroying 11 million people, 6 million Jewish people? How, How can the human heart be so cold and indifferent? And I've I've read with, with intrigue about how it is that those, those SS soldiers and those leaders that we would eventually see at the Nuremberg trials be put on trial for war crimes and for what they did in the concentration camps at Birkenau and Treblinka, hearing their, reading their testimonies. Because the whole world was confounded with the reality that, that evil is real, and we've seen it. And, and understand that, that back in the 40s, we didn't have the instant social media. It took time for the pictures to come out. It took time for, for, the, for the accounts of what happened in those concentration camps to come out. And when it did, the world was looking at it going, how in the world, how in the world could this happen? What was going on in the hearts of the SS What's interesting is, is that over a period of time, and the German leadership, the German machine was teaching their people that not only was their race predominant, that their race was the greatest, at the same time, they were pointing at other races going, they're less than. You see, this is where it began. And specifically the Jewish race, and specifically people with special needs, Uh, people with with disabilities, the Germans would begin pointing and say, we're better than those people. And they would define those people as Jewish people, people with disabilities and other races that they had deemed that was less than. So it started out with with racism. One race better than the other, and that was propagated and taught. Well, then eventually it leads to what we know to be the final solution. The final solution is, is something must be done about these people. If, if we're better than them, something must be done about them because, because they're just a drag on society. Well, what should we do? There's a meeting of the German leadership, and one of their leaders steps forward and says, I have a plan. Let's exterminate them. You would think somebody would step forward and go, what? That's insane. We can not do that. But everybody agreed. And they got rolled out, and, and the concentration camps were built, and, and here you have, and this is what I always blew my mind, you've got soldiers who've been trained and equipped with the idea that not only their race is better, this race is subservient, this race doesn't deserve to live. Okay, how do you get to the point of where you are opening up a gas chamber And you are lying to these people, telling them that when they go into this gas chamber, that they're going to have a shower. We've got to prepare you for the the work camps. You're going to go to a work camp, and you're going to work, so we're going to lie to you. And women holding children walk into this gas chamber. And the guys up on top of the gas chamber drop the tablets in. It produces a gas, and it is a horrific, horrific death. How do you do that? As a human being, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you watch children being walked into their death? How do you do that? I'll tell you how. What started out as racism, what started out as they're less than, leads to this idea of the final solution. And part of the teaching that the German people were telling their leaders and their people is that, hey, the Jewish people are not real people. They're animals. They're not special. They're a plague on society. So when you're ushering these human beings into this gas chamber, they're not actually human beings. They're animals. They're lower than animals. So there's, there's no recompense. There's no wrong done here. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. I need you to hear me. Unchecked hatred in your heart will take you to desperate evil places, and disciples of Christ, hear me well, you can be harboring that kind of hateful hatefulness in your heart and hold on to it for years and years and years. And you need to understand that where that bitterness will take you, where that hatred will take you, where that anger will take you is a place of abject brokenness, evil, and at some point you will act upon it, whether that be an outburst, short temper. I've heard, I've heard men say, well, I, you know, I just got a short temper. Well, do something about it. If you're a follower of Jesus you've got a short temper, then go to Christ with that and say, I need help here. True disciples of Christ not only avoid murder, but they avoid the heart attitudes behind it. If you've got anger and unforgiveness in your heart, deal with that now. Repent of that now. Ask Christ to help you with that now. The bitter divorce, the adultery, the the, the choices your kids have made, the choices you've made. You're harboring that in your heart, and it is destroying you. It's eating you up from the inside out. And, and, and the ritualistic plastic of worship is never going to be able to provide enough healing in your heart. What is needed is confession to Christ and repentance and healing from his hand. That's it. You're not going to find that from medications. You're not going to find that from psychology. You're only going to find that by confessing it, being forgiven of it, and the Holy Spirit empowering you to get past it. That's it. Second, True disciples of Christ treat people with dignity and respect, even if we disagree. I wish our government could get this. Because what's happening in our government right now is personal attack. I'm okay with debate. Debate is a healthy thing. That's a good thing. But what we see in our government right now, especially in the house right now, all we see is personal attack. And so as followers of Jesus, we are required, we are called to respect people, even people we disagree with. Even people who maybe even hate us people who are far, far, far from Christ, we are called to respect and show dignity. Why is that? Because they bear the image of God, even in their brokenness, even in their fallenness. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, preached a sermon one time, and he talked about the, the image of God, and this is what he said. He said, quote, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory Should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. End quote. What does he mean by that? He says, his neighbor, created in the image of God, who may be an atheist, who who, who maybe hates Christianity. He says, that I need to understand the load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory. What glory? The glory of God in that person. Even though it's veiled in sin and evil and disobedience, that person still has value in the eyes of God. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to respect and show dignity even to those people we disagree with. Third, and finally, true disciples of Christ are ministers of reconciliation. You've been reconciled to God. There was this day where Peter comes to Jesus and Jesus says, Jesus, Jesus, how how many times should I forgive? Should I should I give forgive seven times? Which, by the way, in, in Jewish culture and Judaism, that was a big deal. I mean, to forgive somebody seven times, man, that was huge. You give somebody seven times, Peter, you're just the greatest forgiver of all time. And that's what Peter was expecting. When he said seven times to Jesus, he thought that Jesus was going to say, wow, Peter, man, I'm blown away by your grace, bro. You're all that, man. Jesus looks at him and says, no, Peter, 70 times seven. Now, Jesus isn't saying 490 times. Jesus is saying, and he goes into a parable and he says, for every one of you who've been forgiven, you must forgive much. You've been forgiven much. You must forgive much. In other words, you've been reconciled, as Paul would say it in Second Corinthians 5. You've been reconciled to God, and now you have the ministry of reconciliation. The church is known by its love, by its truth, by its unity. We stand on truth. We are a unified body in Christ, and we love people, even those who don't like us. That's what we've been called to. So from Genesis 9 all the way to the Sermon on the Mount to right now. I don't know who's hurt you. Don't need to know that. What I do know is that hurt can turn into anger, which can lead to bitterness, which can lead to hatred, which can lead to a continual conversation you're having with yourself about that person. And in that conversation you're having with yourself, go of that. Any time to put that at the feet of Jesus and to say, I, 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 can't, I can't let go of this. I need your help. But I want to let go. Just as you have forgiven me, I want to be able to forgive this person and move on with my life. If that's you this morning, then this time of commitment's for you,